Hello and welcome to the seventh podcast in our Global Business Crime Outlook podcast series. My name is Ben Packer and I'm a partner in Linklater's Dispute Resolution Practice in London. Today we're here to talk about cybercrime. It's a topic that needs little introduction. Barely a day goes by without news of another cyber incident. In the past few months alone, we've seen the colonial pipeline in the US out of operation for five days following a ransomware attack. And we've seen hospitals across Ireland crippled by the Irish Department of Health being locked out of their systems. In this podcast, we're going to take a brief look at who's behind these attacks, how they operate, and share our top tips on how to prepare for and respond to a cyber incident. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Erez Lieberman, a partner in our data solutions, cyber and privacy practice in New York, and Pete Church, counsel in our TMT practice in London. We're also pleased to be joined by our guest speaker, Dave Harvey, managing director and the head of FTI Consulting's UK cybersecurity practice based in London. Dave, to kick us off, can you tell us who tends to be behind these attacks and what they're after? Thanks, Ben. When we consider who's behind this cyber incident, there's some recognised buckets. Nation states, organised criminal groups, activists, terrorists, insiders, both malicious and maybe unintentional, and last but not least, relatively unskilled but dangerous thrill seekers. Most of these cyber actors are potentially very sophisticated in their techniques, yet likely to have quite varying motivation for what they're doing. For example, a nation state might try to steal intellectual property or launch an attack for political reasons. A terrorist group might be after maximum disruption to national infrastructure as an example. Whilst an organised criminal group, their motivation is likely to be purely financial. It's interesting to note for us that the lines between these groups can and are increasingly blurring. Nation state actors often hire organised criminal groups to do their bidding in order to some form of plausible deniability. As an example, a recent report revealed that a nation state used cyber capabilities to extract about $2 billion from the global economy in 2018 alone to fund its new WMD programmes. A theme that we're seeing is ransomware groups deploy increasingly sophisticated arsenals in their attacks with some complex tactics and techniques which have previously been the domain of nation states. In March 19, for example, a leading global industrial company with operations around the world found itself the victim of an attack. The, the attacker came in the form of a compromised email sent via an existing customer's email address to an unsuspecting employee. That employee then opened unwittingly and unleashed a type of ransomware that gave an enterprising group of cyber criminals access to and eventual control of the entire victim's network. Furthermore, these capabilities we've mentioned were only available to nation states a few years ago and are now available to be bought on the dark web. And I'd suggest that the recent supply chain attacks that we've seen in the media being coordinated by organised crime were earlier this year only considered the action of a relatively sophisticated nation state. So this understanding of attribution is pretty critical and something I suspect we'll discuss a little later. Thanks, Dave. So there's obviously more and more people and actors getting involved in cybercrime and deploying more sophisticated weapons. Erez, if that's the case, what should organizations do to prepare? Well, uh, the most important element are implementing baseline controls. Uh, we've seen guidance from governments and regulators. For example, in the United States, the White House talked about ransomware and said that it is important for the private sector and the public sector to work together. but notwithstanding the importance of the public sector, the government, to work on this, they pointed out that there are basic controls that companies should take. For example, multi-factor authentication, 
right? So companies where you can log into your accounts with a username and password and nothing else. You don't need a one-time passcode sent to your cell phone or you don't need to use an app like an RSA token. You're not doing enough, uh, plain and simple. You're not doing enough and the government has pointed that out. A vulnerability patching. A lot of these ransomware actors and other actors are getting in because systems aren't patched. Companies are leaving their systems unpatched, not for a, a day or two or three, not even for a month or two, but you hear of companies with a year or two or three. And that is just leaving the door wide open for hackers. They don't even need to be sophisticated or smart. They're just getting in through a system that is known to have open, open doors. Uh, and then endpoint detection and response. Uh, even with everything done right, the hackers sometimes get in. Sometimes they trick us to clicking on phishing emails or other elements. And so you need to have endpoint detection, which is reviewing computers and checking what's going on there for anomalous behavior. Those are elements now that are coming out by regulators and people need to focus on them. I will say that a lot of companies have these, but then they don't audit to make sure that they have these across the board and the hackers find the one or two computers that are left unsecured. After you get the technical controls in, the hackers are still gonna come in. I, I hate to say that, but they are gonna find their way. They're, that's what you know, fuels them. The ransomware industry alone is said to have made $350 million last year. So it's in their best interest to make millions of dollars and they're gonna find the opening. And you need to be prepared to respond to that. And that preparation for me starts with tabletop exercises. Most people hear that and they say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have our IT teams working through IT response all the time. And I say, that's great. That is certainly one type of tabletop exercise. But the C-suite, all the way up to the CEO and including board members also need to be in these because at the end of the day, the IT team, the information security team, they're not gonna make a decision about whether you're paying ransom. They're not gonna decide what you're telling the board of directors. They're not gonna decide what you're telling all your clients. The C-suite is, and they need to be prepared and understand these risks and a tabletop exercise helps them go through a simulation two to four hours and work through how it is that they would respond to this and then what needs to be done to get the company ready. Thanks, Erez. And that, that leads us neatly on to the next question, which is that clearly different organizations are exposed to different levels of cyber risk. And the question is therefore, you know, what level of preparation is enough? What is the level of preparation required by the law? Uh, Pete, turning to you, what, what is the appropriate level of protection that's required under UK law? It's a great question, Ben. Uh, it really depends on which particular law you're talking about. But if we think about the GDPR, the obligation under the GDPR is to use appropriate technical and organisational measures to ensure a level of security appropriate to the risk. And that sounds like a pretty warm and fuzzy and flexible obligation. But in practice, it can be quite burdensome for three reasons. Firstly, is while regulators will say they don't approach the assessment of a breach with hindsight, in practice, once a breach has happened, is always pretty obvious. And what you'll tend to find is regulators will focus in on the bit of the organisation's infrastructure that has had the breach and may not take a holistic view of all of the other good work they've done to protect their systems. Secondly, regulators place a great deal of weight on standards to try and flesh out what this flexible requirement is. So in terms of your preparedness, in addition to the sorts of things Erez talked about earlier, you should also be benchmarking your compliance against NCSC guidance, NIST guidance, those sorts of, of those sorts of documents. And finally, it's a question of ratcheting expectations. So, so when I started dealing with data breaches 20 years ago, 
the vast majority were were pratfalls, so uh, unencrypted laptops with large amounts of personal data. Even very recently, things like SQL attacks on databases, which are an extraordinarily obvious and well-known risk. Whereas in the last couple of years, what we've seen is enforcement action taken even where the breach has been really quite sophisticated. Uh, so one example is the uh, fine that was issued to Marriott following a security breach, and that was in that case because of a failure to to adequately set the intrusion detection systems within uh, their IT environment. So not a question of, of not having intrusion detection systems at all, but a question about whether or not they've been set appropriately. Thanks, P. And it's a similar story for some of the sectoral re regulators too. So the FCA and the PRA standard is one of due skill care and diligence, which is akin really to a negligence standard. And again, as you say, it's that ratcheting of expectations over time, but as the whole industry gets better at preparing for and preventing these kind of incidents, therefore the standard gets higher that you're judged against. Um, Erez, what's the position in the US on this? Yeah, thank you, uh, Ben. Let me just make a note, because I agree 100% on the regulatory controls and taking a look at them. Uh, the Cyber Risk Institute, uh, first working with the financial services sector, did a fantastic job of mapping some of the regulatory controls for financial services sector to the NIST controls and other cyber controls. Great way for lawyers in particular, but also for the Information Security Office to really gain an understanding of how all these regulations come together. And you can get free copies of their mapping on the Cyber Risk Institute's website. The United States, not every industry has regulations that touch specifically on ransomware or cyber. And so, unfortunately, I feel like that gives comfort for some counsel to say, well, we don't have these obligations. And I would say that that is a misplaced comfort. Almost every industry is regulated by a requirement to have reasonable security. And that changes over time, right? So if uh, Pete was talking about SQL attacks, which is very common a decade ago, and now we have different types of attacks, each type of security to react to these attacks is what becomes reasonable. When the White House puts out guidance about a month ago about different things that a company can do to protect about ransomware, and you don't do those, that doesn't sound very reasonable anymore. Even if two months ago, before the White House put out simple things to protect against cyber, that may not have been the, the reasonable standard. And so as more companies take more actions, the, the standard of what's reasonable changes, and I think that we're gonna see that evolve into a, a much more significant element Regulatory actions by the FTC in the United States often focus on what is reasonable, and I have no doubt that they are changing every day thanks to the increased controls recommended, uh, even in the sectoral world. Thanks, Erez. So let's then assume for a minute that despite all these preparations and controls against cyber incidents, that the, the worst still happens and cyber attackers gain access to your systems and they demand a ransom. Um, should you pay, Erez? Can you pay under U.S. law? So you can pay under U.S. law, even though we all prefer to say you should never give in to these people. As a matter of public policy, it would be great if no one paid because uh, they, if they can't make money, they'll move to some other form. But the reality is that you might be controlling, if you're a hospital, you're controlling surgeries and life-threatening issues, and you might have to pay. If you're a financial institution and your clients need the money to support their lights, to get groceries, to, to help for cared ones, you might have to pay. There are other industries, the pipeline industry, and you need gas to fuel a country. You might have to pay. And so it is legal, but you do have standards of care, and you can't pay if it's 
uh, entity that is designated as, on some of these lists, right? So you can't pay if it's North Korea that is behind the attacks because you're not allowed to, and you can't pay if it's a designated terrorist organization. So OFAC has put out guidance about what you need to do, and it's strict liability. So it requires working uh, with vendors and with groups like uh, FTI and others that help do the due diligence around who might be behind the attack and what you might be doing to make sure that you are not paying a designated entity on the OFAC lists. It is legal, however. There's no criminal issues involved in it, even though the FBI and others discourage it, as do I. Uh, the reality is that sometimes it is required uh, for your business and customers and, and payments are done. Thanks, Erez. And, and the situation is, is broadly similar in, in many countries that we've looked at, including the UK, where it's not a criminal offence to pay a ransom, provided the hackers are not terrorists or, or subject to sanctions. Uh, but that said, I, I mean, similar to the US, it's the authorities here, so the National Crime Agency, the Financial Conduct Authority and others, all try to discourage companies from paying, because as you say, it just leads to more demands. Um, Dave, as obviously paying the ransom is one thing to think about in those early hours after a cyber attack. What are the other things that companies should have on their list of priorities in those in those first few hours and days? Absolutely. In, in considering the sort of initial actions, it's important to understand the many and the varied priorities. So in addition to pressure to get um, returned to operations as soon as possible, there, there may be regulators, shareholders, employees, law enforcement, many other stakeholders to consider. A recent example that we dealt with was um, the priority for the response ended up being in support of a recent audit. The auditors needed an assurance that the integrity of the financial systems was not compromised uh, before they could submit their report. And clearly any delay to that could have had a major impact on market value. In summary, I suppose it's difficult and therefore it's something that you should absolutely practice. And that raises the first real priority, preparation. Understand not only the policies in place and the baseline that controls that Erez mentioned, but who needs to be involved, what they're going to do, and how they'll need to operate together. Who will need to be notified, and what information will you need in order to do that? So once that incident's happened, then the priorities will, will shift on to identification of the incident, containment, eradication, and then recovery. Uh, but given what we've talked about, in terms of the legal aspects concerning the appropriate level of protection around data, there's inevitably going to be a need to understand why the incident occurred. And therefore, preservation of that evidence is going to be pretty critical. Looking at the, the phases in a bit more detail, uh, as you can imagine, identification is all about detecting those anomalies that are associated with a cyber incident and collecting as much information and evidence as, as possible. Containment's all about minimising the impact of the attack, minimising the damage. And this can be really challenging in systems that are that are connected to operational technology, as we've seen very recently in the US. Eradication involves removing the threat from your environment, identifying the root cause, and then putting in place those protections across people, process and technology to make sure it doesn't happen again. Only then can you really consider bringing those affected systems back online carefully to prevent additional attacks. And then once the attack's over, what we'd suggest is you understand what happened, why it happened, and what lessons can you take from that. Thanks, Dave. So, so one of the things you mentioned, Dave, was thinking about who you might need to notify in the aftermath of a cyber attack. And, and Pete, I wonder if you could just outline broadly what notifications could be required in those first few hours and days. 
Look, so there's been a real blossoming of regulatory notification obligations over the past few years. Everyone thinks about the GDPR, but there are lots of other laws that also require notifications in the event of a security breach. The Communications Act, the Network and Information Systems Regulation, Payment Services Regulation, and importantly, they all have different triggers to, for notification, different regulators you've got to notify, different time scales for notification. So if you take uh, security breaches, for example, under the GDPR, it's 72 hours to notify the breach. But for a serious incident under the Communications Act, that notification window shrinks to as little as three hours. So, so Dave was talking about preparation earlier, and I would completely support everything he said there. Uh, and part of that preparation work ought to be having a clear understanding of which regulators need to tell when in the event of a breach. And actually, you ought to also think about that commercially. So think about contractually, which counterparties you need to tell in, in the event of a security breach and by when. Thanks, Pete. And I, I guess just to add to that as well, it, it goes without saying that there's also sectoral regulators that might require notification. So the FCA, for instance, requires uh, notification of all material cyber incidents. Uh, equally, there may be market announcement requirements. There may be various other uh, notifications to ensure is required. And errors, I presume that the position is the same in the US? Yeah, absolutely. In the United States, we have a ton of regulatory obligations in terms of notification, as well as to individuals. Uh, we work very closely with regulators and have relationships with them, uh, and companies should have that in advance. Uh, it is one of the few fields, I feel, is that regulators are often on the same side, or they, they should be, and you should be with them, in the sense that we're all trying to protect consumers, we're all trying to protect our entities, and there's such a high demand to work together for resiliency that a good relationship with companies, regulators, law enforcement is what is getting us to better cybersecurity overall. Thanks, Erez. And I think really what all of today shows is that really preparation is key. There is so much to think about and so much to be ready for that you don't want to be trying to work it out for the first time when a cyber incident actually occurs. Um, so I just want to say thank you to all of our speakers today on the podcast and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Um, if you'd like to hear a more in-depth exploration of these issues, a recording of our recent webinar on this topic is available on the Link Latest Knowledge Portal, uh, as are many other resources on cybersecurity. Mm -hmm.